the room. <laughs> Don't you love it? Not that the fun's left the room, but uh, don't you love to hear the voices of little children enjoying themselves at church? When they're in another room is really what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> My sense is that we, yeah, we can still hear them in there in another room, can we? Yeah. I thought I was loud. I am. <laughs> My sense is that we uh, come to church Sunday by Sunday, and uh, we have a uh, Sunday school lesson on some verses from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We come to big church, and we have a sermon from Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we read from Ecclesiastes, and we read from Psalms, and we do this week after week, and um, I don't know that we get the sense of how it all connects. In 2019, I want us to see the big picture, uh, to try to connect all of those stories and the 66 books and so many things that we, we hear and we've heard. Many of us have been in church for years. But maybe we've never been able to put it all together. And let me tell you why I think that's so important. Because God is our creator, sustainer. This is, history is about his story he has revealed his story and what our existence is all about in his in inspired word. And here's my, the reason that's so significant is because there is no way for us to put our story in his story unless we see his story. I think that may be why we're a little bit out of sorts and we maybe don't understand what it's all about because we have not seen God's big story and what it's all about. And that's what we're going to try to do this year. That's a little ambitious. Um, and this is what I want to ask you is that you would give your minds this year to see God's big story the big picture and then you would give your heart to submit yourself to say my story is really not about me at all but my story is significant to God but it's about my story fitting into God's story now we're just a couple weeks in it's a little bit early uh, but that's what I, I want you to give your minds, but I also want you to give your hearts to surrender and submit. Uh, let's just be honest. If my story does not line up with his story, how can my story make any sense? How can it have any significance if my story 
is running contrary to what we know the story is about. Either we believe this, and this is God's inspired record of what it all means, or not. Um, part of us understanding uh, God's big story is understanding the geography of where the story takes place. And actually the story in God's revealed word takes place in a relatively small geographic area. But here's the reality for us living in America. It's not most of us other than Ted and Barbara and maybe Tommy Jan. Anybody else been to the Holy Lands here that would be willing to raise your hands? There we go, Rob Hughes. Okay, there's four of y'all. Yeah, yeah. The rest of us like, duh, I don't know. You can say all, you can say Beersheba and Gilgal and Babylon and all those other words. And it's like, I, I don't know what that even means. So periodically this year, we're going to throw a map up on the screen and just talk about kind of uh, what we're talking about, what the geography of it is. And so this morning, I wanted to show you our first picture. And it's, um, uh, it's a very simple map. And um, I want you to be able to place where we think the Garden of Eden was. If you see the two major rivers, and this is in modern-day Iraq, but the Tigris and Euphrates, most biblical scholars would believe that the Garden of Eden uh, was somewhere in that region, a region that would be called Mesopotamia. <laughs> Mesopotamia from the Greek, you know, because everything I come from the Greek, you know. That wasn't very good, was it? Uh, Meso in the middle, Potamia is rivers. It's in the middle of the rivers. And so we believe that the Garden of Eden was between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And uh, actually... Uh, the world would have been reconfigured during Noah's flood, and so it was a little bit different. Uh, but here's what it says. Moses, inspired by the Scriptures, says that the Garden of Eden was in the east. In the east. The biblical account is written from the perspective of the land of Canaan, which is where the F and the E and the R are in uh, fertile crescent there if that helps you uh, maybe not but uh, and so that's where the promised land we won't get that for another two Sundays but where God promised his people that land and so when they say the Garden of Eden was east in the east they're looking from the perspective of that and so we believe it is in the Tigris Euphrates the Mesopotamian area uh, there's another interesting thing as I read this week from our selected passages from Genesis 3 to 11 is that when they go out of the Garden of Eden I haven't even got to that if you don't even know that yet they only make it two chapters in the Bible in the Garden but anyhow we'll talk about that here in just a minute when they leave the Garden of Eden they go east and there's the phrase east of Eden uh, when Cain murders his brother Abel, and I know we haven't gotten that story yet. It's coming this morning. And he flees 
he goes east. This morning we'll kind of conclude with the, the Tower of Babel, at least mentioning it. And uh, they said that they, they built the Tower of Babel in the east. So everything, in essence, biblically, when you think about it, departing from God, you always go east. And so two Sundays from now, if we're just talking geographically, when he calls Abraham to a country that he'll lead him to, he goes west. So um, I don't know. I'm just kind of introducing to you geography this morning. I also want to introduce you to uh, a, a timeline because not only do we have to have a geographic understanding of the story, but we need to have a chronological uh, sense of the story. Um, if you take the biblical record at face value, and that's all your pastor knows to do, and you take the gene genealogies of the people backwards, you come to about 4,000 B.C., Adam and Eve. Uh, from Adam and Eve to Noah, there are about eight generations. It gets us into the first thousand years. In fact, the interesting thing this morning, we're going to cover from 4,000 to 2,000 B.C. We're going to cover 2,000 of the 6,000 years of uh, human history. But don't get anxious that we're somehow going to finish this series of sermons early. It's not going to happen. We're just going to cover a lot of material um, in those first 2,000 years. There's several interesting things of note. Um, Adam and Eve, eight generations, and Noah. But the lifespans are many times 900 years. In fact, the oldest man recorded to live was Methuselah, 969 years. Uh, the interesting thing is Adam lives... I don't remember the exact, but it's about 900 years. When Adam dies, uh, at least six or seven generations below him are still living. Adam comes within a hundred years of the birth of Noah. And so even though there's ten generations, they're living such a long time that... Uh, Adam's son, Seth, is still walking the earth when Noah, the tenth generation, is born. Uh, Noah is 500 years old when he begins to build the ark. And uh, Lola, it takes him 100 years to build it. And if Lola's been to uh, the replica in Kentucky... And uh, so Noah is 600 years old. Um, but when Noah is born, there are six or seven generations preceding him that are still walking the earth. And uh, Noah's grandfather is Methuselah. Do you know when Methuselah died? Well, he was 969. He dies, if you plot it out, he dies the year of the flood kind of interesting I don't know what that story is and um, Noah's father I'm drawing a blank on who it is it doesn't matter dies several years before the flood and uh, here's one of the interesting things is if you notice well you can't notice here but Noah lives get this 
350 years after the flood. All the ancient cultures of the world have this flood story. Different details. But do you know why? Oh, because there really was a flood. (laughs) And Noah was on the boat with his sons, and they lived 350 years. Yeah, I remember the day it began to rain. You know, I know there were some stories. You know, you're sitting down at the picnic tables at Boots telling stories. You know? Yeah, I remember when I heard the voice the first time. I looked at my boys and I said, I wonder what gopher wood is. No, joking. No, you wonder, wait a second. How do we know these stories? How does Moses know these stories? Noah, Noah lived within 100 years of Adam. He heard the stories for sure from Grandpa Methuselah who walked the earth with Adam who told him the story. I remember the day I just woke up. And there was God blowing the breath of life into me. And I went, whoa, wow. Anyhow, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm departing from the biblical record surely here. No, they told the stories. And Noah goes in to the post-flood world 350 years. Noah lives within years of the birth of Abraham. You can almost span 2,000 years from Adam to Noah to Abraham. There's only just a few years gaps between those guys. And they told the stories of what God had done. Uh, this morning, we're going we're gonna to take a, a, a shot at that. Adam and Eve, eight generations, Noah, the flood, the Tower of Babel. It's going to get us up to the time of Abraham. But chronologically, there's one other book of the Bible that fits in there before Abraham comes on the scene. Hmm. It'll be next Sunday. It'll be the book of Job. Ah, dated about 2200 B.C. Now, some of y'all are going, whoa, I don't, Brother Darrell, you just threw out a bunch of stuff right there. It's all right. There is a, there's a reference sheet at the end of your pews, and we'll have them there every Sunday. Um, you can pick one of those up. There may not be enough for your particular row, but steal from the row behind you or whatever. Share. and There'll always be some left over in pews if you'll look around afterwards. But it, it's a reference sheet for you to look at. And if you weren't here the first two Sundays... We'll have the reference sheets out in the foyer. You. you can go and pick those up and go, oh, I missed that. Listen to it online. Uh, get your reference sheet. It has a lot of the details uh, that I want you to take away from week to week. Well, the story takes a significant turn in Genesis chapter 3. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. God had made the perfect place. Not only the Garden of Eden, but the entire earth and the whole universe. And it is true that God is the center of the story. The story is about God. God is the center of the universe, but at the center of God's heart is mankind. And everything he created was for us to have the place that was just right to live and to be who he wanted us to be. There were two trees in the garden. And the only thing really that God said to Adam that is recorded in Scripture is, there's two trees in the middle. Don't eat of those trees. One is the tree, I'm sorry, there's two trees, two special trees. One of those, one is the tree of life, which apparently they were able to eat. One was the tree that gives the knowledge of good and evil. And God said, you shall not eat of that. In the day that you eat of that, you shall die. It was God from the very beginning who determined what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil. Goodness emanates from the very character of God. But the reason God declares things good is because it is what is best for us to live in the world that he created for us. The woman encounters the serpent in the garden. We will just talk about the serpent today. Next Sunday when we get to the book of Job, we will introduce the adversary, Satan, the devil. Um, we're going to press on through today. Um, and the serpent tempts the woman. And she chooses to take of the fruit of the forbidden tree. It says in verse 6 that she saw that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, it was desirable, but it was also desirable to make one wise. They would know, have the knowledge of God of right and wrong. When the woman takes of the fruit, when Eve takes of the fruit, gives it to Adam, who is there with her, and they eat, uh, sin 
is introduced into the world. And sin is not so much about the act as it is about the heart rebellion that says, I will be the God of my life and I will decide what I want and what, here, here's really, in the, I think for Moses writing, I will decide what is good for me. But the very heart of sin is when I say the story's about me, not him. As long as the story's about him, then he decides what is good and what is right. But when there is the heart rebellion, and it's not so much about the act, it is about the heart that said, no, I will decide for myself what I will choose. The story becomes about me. Now, we really have to think about each of our own lives at this point because that story is our story. That there was a point in our life, whether we knew right or wrong or what our concepts were of that, that I said, I will be my own God. I will decide what I want to do. And here's the thing, people. God gives us the freedom to do that. But that, that life is at a 90-degree contrast, rebellion with what God has revealed in his word and what God, our creator, he said was good. He gave him a perfect garden. Only one thing, don't eat of that tree. But when they ate of that tree, their hearts rebelled against God. Sin is when we make ourselves the center of the story and it becomes about me. Now, quite honestly, that's all I want to say about sin today. Because if we're taking a fly over the scripture, I wanted to cover Genesis 3 through 11 today. And here's what I see, and I can do this relatively quickly <clears throat> in Baptist preacher terms. <clears throat> Genesis 3 through 11, starting in, really starting even in verse 7, we see the effects of sin. And here's what I notice about the story when I just looked at this from the big picture everything changes. One small act of heart rebellion and everything in God's creation changes everything you say wait a second it was only one little thing why didn't it just change one little thing because that one little thing is heart rebellion against the God who writes the story and I, I want to read uh, Genesis 3 8 and following and make a few comments. Notice, well, really, we have to start in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together 
and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for in dust you are, for to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim here it is, at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As the story unfolds, the heart rebellion of the first two people changes everything sin affects everything and it causes if you notice in the story shame fear separation and by separation I mean from one from each other and with God and it also causes a fallen world. Everything 
changes. You see the shame. They know they're naked. They begin to cover themselves. When God comes, they hide themselves. Saint, sin creates shame. It creates fear. They hid themselves because they knew they were not right with the creator of the universe. But it also creates separation. Uh, ultimately, in the end of the chapter, separation is going to be they are cast out of the garden that God was to live with them in. So they are separated from God. But if we looked at the details of the story, Adam and Eve, if there's anybody to go to marriage counseling to, they should have gone to marriage counseling about that point, but there wasn't any counselors there. I'm sorry. There's only two of them, and they couldn't get along, and there were problems. Because that's the way sin is. God created them to be one, but because of sin, there was division. Separation from God, separation uh, from each other. The thing that strikes me is that even the created natural world is affected by sin. Now, Daryl Smith's not smart enough to understand all of that. I'm just telling you what I read in the scripture. Everything changed that God had planned. One act or two acts of heart rebellion. and Everything is affected. And when you see the story then from Genesis chapter 3, that's what plays out. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? They have two kids, Cain and Abel. Sin's in the world. What happens? Uh, Cain Cain is a farmer raises crops Abel raises livestock and they bring their sacrifices Cain his fruit from what he was growing plant life Abel animal life the shedding of blood and God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's and what happens? Cain murders Abel. Wow, sin's introduced in the world. The first man and woman are separated. <laughs> At least the first two sons. And there were, would have been many other sons that aren't mentioned. And we know Seth is actually uh, another son. There would have been many other sons and daughters. This is how they were multiplying and filling the earth but the first two that are mentioned Cain murders Abel see the effects of sin if you if you go on in the story we come to Genesis chapter 6 and the wickedness becomes so great that God wishes he'd never created mankind and he decides he's bringing judgment but there was one righteous man Noah and his three sons and their wives, each had a wife. And he tells Noah, who's a righteous man, I'm going to spare you, but everyone else, I'm wiping everything else. In fact, the world changed so drastically. I think the geography, the topography, everything, the environment changed. We don't have time to talk about that this morning. There was a world before the flood, there's a world after the flood. The bridge between all of that is Noah, his three sons, and their wives. 
and a really big boat that they lived on with all the animals for one year, over one year, until the waters subsided. And um, you see that sin became so great that God brings judgment. What is the next story? Well, there's a story about Noah and the covenant that God makes. But really the next major story that I I want to introduce is the Tower of Babel. A people that wanted to make their name great. Wow, you're talking about somebody's story who just, boop, running perpendicular to God's story. Uh, No. So God sends the languages of the world. He confuses their languages as they tried to build this monument to themselves up to the sky so they would be like God and God confuses them and God scatters them across the earth Uh, I'll tell you that um, what we see in the story is that sin always creates division but in the sovereignty of God God's plan was also that mankind would scatter across the world and that his glory and his order would be spread throughout all the world and so even in the midst of that God has a plan what I see in the story Genesis 3 through 11 is that everything is affected relationships are affected nature is affected Um, that is the effect of sin and what we discover is that we live in a broken world Everything in the world is broken. I'm broken, you're broken, our relationships are broken, our governments are broken, the nations of the world are broken. But I want you to know this morning that God never loses control. Even though we live in a broken world and mankind chooses to be his own God and put himself at the center of the story, God's hand never leaves. God is still in control. And what I began to see even in these stories of the brokenness of our world is that God has a plan to fix it. We just get these little glimpses of redemption in the story. They're just just a little inkling that God has not lost control, that God has a plan and God is still working. And it will be thousands of years until we see that plan. But you begin to see these little statements as God speaks to the serpent and he tells the serpent the day will come that the seed of this woman will crush your head. The day's coming. That's Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That's early in the story. No, the day will come. The seed of the woman, singular, will crush your head. You get this little glimpse of the story in the story of Cain and Abel and their sacrifices, one a blood sacrifice and one not a blood sacrifice. And God sends a message in those early days without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Only the blood, life for life, will cover your life. And then the story of the boat of the righteous that God spares the righteous in the midst of his judgment he has a he has a plan he has a vehicle 
He has a way of escape. He has a path to redemption. There could be a lot of corny cliches right now. You just got to get on the boat. Whatever it is. I could turn some phrases right now. But you get the the picture. And the rest of the story, it's just glimpses of redemption. And here's the crazy thing. 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2, everything is right. Just perfect. You You flip to the end of the book. Revelation 21, 22, you'll have to stick around all year long. It'll be the last Sunday of this year. We'll get to it because there is a place called glory. Revelation 21, 22, and all things will be made right for eternity. Two chapters at the beginning, two chapters at the end, 1,185 other chapters where God's trying to fix and fulfill his mission of redemption. But from the very beginning, we get the glimpses of redemption. That God says, I have a plan. But the plan begins with me and you taking our lives that are at a 90-degree angle with God and lining them up and saying, it's not about me. It's not about me determining what is good, what is right, what I think I'm going to do, what I want to do. The only way our story can make sense and we can be right is if our story lines up with his story, that we fit our story into his story. Let me ask you, just as we wind this down, where Do you see the brokenness in your life and in your world? It may be in relationships. It may be in hmm, governments. I don't know. So many things that we could name. From a personal perspective, as we look around our lives to see the brokenness, here's what I want you to know today. All that brokenness started and is perpetuated by a heart rebellion of the first man and woman, and then my heart rebellion and your heart rebellion. Let me say this, if you want to fix the brokenness to our world, there's only one place to look, and that is the Lord God who created us and set it all up. The crazy thing to me is that the rebellion and the relationship with the Lord God caused everything else to be broken. Here it is. The only solution to fixing it all is to be in a right relationship with God. We can look to politics. We can look to economics. We can look to pop psychology. You can look to everything you want to find to fix the problems in your life. 
But when you look at the big picture, it was caused by one thing, and it'll only be fixed by one thing. So this morning, whatever it is that you see broken, look to the only the one person, the only person who can fix that. And it starts by being in a right relationship with Creator, Sovereign, Lord, God. And the message in the Bible that He's already given us glimpses into <laughs> was that 2,000 years after the events that we've just detailed, the only begotten Son of God came and by His death and resurrection crushed the head of this enemy that we'll talk about next week. And by His shed blood, He atoned for our sin. And God says, just like Noah's boat, it's the only way out of here. There's no other. I'm telling you today, if you have never made a commitment, I urge you today, I'm telling you, when you look to the story of the God of the universe that he inspired, he says there's only one way. God only makes one way of escape, and it's through his son and his shed blood. When you surrender and you submit and you line up your life and your heart that has rebelled against him. Today, I'm going to ask us to stand. Brother Shane's going to come. My admonition to you today is that if you have never surrendered your heart to the Savior my prayer would be today would be that day and just as the heart rebellion took one simple step <laughs> the heart surrender is also a simple step that says God I'm not the center of the story you are and I submit myself to you, and I trust in Christ, and Christ alone, to save and redeem the brokenness, starting with me, God. And this morning, you can do that, Byron, and I'll be at the front. You may have other decisions to make today to say, I don't, I don't know where you are, what, what, I don't know. You may come to the altar, you may want to talk to Byron, myself, Talk to somebody else, pray. Whatever you need to do to say, God, I, I know, I know I'm not where I need to be. And maybe you're a child of God and you need to turn and to say, God, I need to line up with you. So whatever your decision would be, whatever God would lead you to do, we invite you to come as we sing.